Nation podcast. This is a brand new episode of Dive Cuts. We're on season four. I believe this is episode 19. Um, looking outside the window, it is a, a blizzard-like condition here in, in St. Louis, Missouri. We are uh, we are snowed in. Um, with me as always, also probably feeling some wintry effects there in Indianapolis, is uh, Matthew J. Harris. Matt, how are you? Uh, I'm fine. Uh, I came in a bit ago for my second attempt to try and uh, pre-shovel uh, the, the 12 to 14 inches we might get tonight. Um, it, it, it's a Sisyphean task, but it's better than like walking out tomorrow and having 14 inches I've got to clear off a sidewalk and driveway. So, uh, Not fruitless, but it certainly felt that way uh, when I came back inside 30 minutes ago. Yeah, the... Uh... The amount of snowfall here is is reaching uh, some concerning proportions to the point where I'm not really... Now, fortunately, I work from home, um, but my wife does not. She drives a lot for a living, and so, yeah, I'm not really looking forward to getting out and having to, like, you know, shovel the, the driveway, and <laughs> also because, like, it's not supposed to warm up until Saturday, this weekend. Right? So, I mean, yeah, like, you're, we're going to have to do some shoveling our driveway is long so that's that's not a lot of fun um and it also was not how about that for a segue uh, a lot of fun for the missouri tigers last week as uh our our 10th ranked tigers took two losses right on the nose uh, dropped them to 20th in the ap poll uh went on the road matt it was pretty ugly at ole miss got blitzed lost by 21 points um Tried to recover back at home against Arkansas. Did not have Jeremiah Tillman available. Uh, put up a good fight against a uh, now top 25 ranked Arkansas team. A team that's uh, been playing a lot better of late. Um, but took them uh, to overtime, but couldn't quite pull it out. Thought they uh, had a good shot there. With a couple possessions there in the uh, middle of the overtime period. But, uh, yep, didn't get it done. So, Missouri's 0-2. They're ranked 20th. They're heading to Georgia tomorrow night. We are recording this Monday night. Um, how'd you feel about that Ole Miss loss? Honestly, it, I felt like for the first seven or eight minutes, they were more engaged than I think people thought. I think you know, I was... I couldn't watch it live. It was... a. Uh, Mrs. Harris's birthday that night, so I like came back to it early the next day, and just the way like you see things on Twitter, you see like sporadic kind of like bits and pieces. You would have thought it was just a meltdown from the start, and I thought for the first seven or eight minutes that, that it was actually pretty good. Um, there were some issues defensively, there were issues in ball screens and things like that, but nothing that was like too concerning. I thought the offense. Oh, uh, wasn't bad. Um, you know, I obviously wrote about Xavier Pinson and kind of his struggles there, but early on, I thought Pinson was particularly engaged. I mean, he wasn't driving the ball and wasn't getting to the line, but you know, when I was tracking his possessions, he was playing a role in almost every possession down the floor. It was just that they were Drew Smith was in a, a pretty good early rhythm. They were getting some post touches to Tillman. They there, there were some other guys who were getting looks within the flow of the offense. I thought things for the first seven or eight minutes looked good. Uh, defense started to erode after that um it was still like i think and i kept wondering like how much of it was defense versus unsustainable shooting but when they came out of the locker room and and, and you'll touch on this later 
the first six or seven minutes out of the locker room was just that that was the death knell for him um not great defensively the offense bogged down and this team's just not built to recover from 15 plus points down it's just not how it works for them and uh i think around the time they got to that second media timeout they i think that's when you could probably see the belief like that ineffable quality you know his belief kind of gone they're down almost 20 there's no real path back and uh it was ugly for those first seven or eight minutes of the second half and and then i think they were just trying to get out of town and get out of dodge uh by limiting the damage so uh i thought it, it was a pretty good start you anticipate old miss is going to come out and going to play well at home and they just didn't find that extra bit of effort that extra bit of belief or that consistency that you sort of expect from them in certain phases of the game and almost got them for five or six minutes and that was all they needed yeah so uh it was interesting one of the things that i was you know i think discussing online and um after the game is a lot of people sort of get the feeling that well i mean obviously the the struggles in mississippi this year are standing out for people uh, football team goes down and just gets, you know, throttled against um, Mississippi State, and um, a lot of people are blaming that trip to Starkville for them having to, you know, basically skip the, uh, the bowl game against Iowa, um, and then Missouri obviously goes down to Starkville again for as the the basketball team and just has a terrific first half, atrocious second half. Uh, and it, it, it's one of the things where I really thought Missouri played well, at least offensively, uh, against the Rebels um, for like the first 15 to 18 minutes. And then they just sort of let go of the rope a little bit, kind of down the stretch of uh, halftime. And, and I think end up giving uh, almost like a six-point lead or something like that. Um, and then that momentum just carried into the second half. Uh, but... In looking at the failures in Mississippi this year, um, I think I was kind of spurred to compile some records and look at, uh, and I, I'm going to get into probably a lot of all the stuff that I compiled in the offseason because it was it's pretty interesting. Um, but I basically just ripped all the... Um, all the schedules and, and, and results from... Uh, the entire SEC since Missouri has joined the league. Uh, Matt, did you know that Missouri is three and fourteen against Ole Miss? Three well, and fourteen. I, I did because I also looked that up after the game because it seemed like they, that is the worst record uh, <laughs> of well for Missouri against anybody in the SEC. Now, granted, um, you know if if you want to, you know put a little caveat next to that. Obviously, you know, the uh, Commanderson years are going to, you know, be a bit of a, uh, a poll on, on some of the n- negative stuff. But even, um, so they were one and three uh, under Frank Haith. Uh, then they went <laughs> under under Commanderson, 0 and 6. Uh, and since they've, they've beaten Ole Miss twice, um, and then, so I guess that was the fifth loss, um, the other night. Uh, so 
they've only been favored in five of the, the these games. So seventeen games they've been favored in five. It's it's sort of like a, a good thing to to note that while you know Ole Miss hasn't really been a world beater program, uh, for the most part they've been better than Missouri has since Missouri's been in the SEC. I think uh, you know the. A lot of people want to say, "Oh, like, well, you know, that when Missouri came in, they were kind of riding a high." It's like, well, Ole Miss was 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 pretty good that year. Um, the, the Rebels went to the NCAA tournament, and won a game. So, um, and you know, Andy Kennedy did, did some good things. Uh, obviously, some better things than than uh, Kim Anderson did. But I just think it's interesting. So, uh, I looked at everybody else's record and. Since Missouri has joined the SEC, so Missouri and, and Texas A&M joined the league, um, there are only three other series where an opponent has has beaten someone 14 times. Uh, and it is Kentucky, who has beaten Vanderbilt and Georgia, and Tennessee, who has beaten Vanderbilt. Um, Tennessee is 14-5. and five against Vanderbilt so a little bit better and I uh, I don't have it directly in front of me but I I think maybe it's Kentucky and Georgia is like 14 and uh, two I don't think they've played as many times as as, uh, as Missouri and Ole Miss have but still Missouri has the same relationship in the SEC as Georgia has with Kentucky or Vanderbilt has with uh, Kentucky gotta make you feel good doesn't it uh no (laughs) but uh, this is the the worst blessing if i want to phrase it that way to have is to like have covered the league or like paid close attention to the league since missouri moved into it uh in a former life i covered lsu and so you were kind of you had to live through the halcyon days of SEC basketball fever in 2012, 13, and 14. Oof. Uh, um, but this is the thing that I, that I know we've probably hinted at this in the past, and if we've previewed Ole Miss, is I, I never thought Andy Kennedy got the credit, the full bill of credit he deserved for what he did in Oxford. Um, that program, for years was underfunded relative to its peers. If you had ever been to the Tad Pad there, it it was one st- step above a livestock arena. It was <laughs> it was that bad. Um it's got a tough, you know, we, we know Cordy Keys was on staff there. I have known people who covered the program and also people on staff there. It was hard to recruit to Oxford, and it's hard to recruit when your mascot is a Confederate rebel and you can and you recruit in a sport that's overwhelmingly African American and Yeah. Andy Kennedy, in eight of his 12 years there, went 500 or better in SEC play. Since Missouri's joined the league, I think in the ninth season of Kermit Davis keeps this up, they'll have had a winning record in, I think, seven of nine seasons. What old, what Andy Kennedy did there is phenomenal. And I think you have to sort of consider the fact of Ole Miss perhaps had, outside of Rod Barnes, its most competent head coach in school history at a time when Missouri all but punted on the sport (laughs) for three years. Right. And and I think that matters. And 
Missouri fans won't want to hear this. But other teams, to put it crudely, started giving a shit about the sport since Missouri's joined the SEC. You know, when SEC Network money came in and started flowing, Mike Slive, you know, brought in Mike Trangese and other former NCAA tournament folks and said, help us figure out a way to be better at basketball. And part of that was they put in the scheduling mandate to have, like, the opponents to have an RPI average of better than 150 and whatever. And that helped because it improved non-conference slates enough to the point where if the SEC was still weak inside its own league, it wasn't as bad. But frankly, other schools started spending money. And Ole Miss was one of them. Ole Miss. Auburn. Ole Miss, Auburn, Georgia. Like, this is the list of schools that spent more money than... Actually, I'll put it this way. These are the schools Missouri outspent in 2018-19, according to federal data. We don't have the 2019-2020 data in yet, so apologies if if that's not there for you. But in 2018-19, Missouri only outspent Georgia and Mississippi State. Everyone else in the SEC spent more than Missouri. In Conzo Martin's first season of 2017-18, Missouri only outspent Tennessee, Vanderbilt, and Mississippi State. So essentially, your two most consistent teams... Since 2014-15, near the bottom portion of the standings in terms of spending, Missouri and Mississippi State. And over that stretch, Mississippi State managed to hire Ben Howland, who is also a more competent coach than Kim Anderson. So <laughs> it's, uh, and I feel uh, well, like that, that's saying the Let's not overboard here, here, Matt. Let's not let's not uh, get carried away with the uh, Kim so, Anderson. So uh, when people like freak out about Missouri's. <laughs> woeful performance against the Mississippi schools my only response is well yeah those schools started to care they they spent money they hired at Ole Miss I don't believe they should have fired Andy Kennedy to basically I think make a lateral move into Kermit Davis but they did but to Ole Miss's credit they ramped up their budget they built the pavilion which is a beautiful facility there in Starkville they hired Ben Halland, and they hired a staff that could get them into Atlanta, Georgia, and help them recruit better. You know, Rick Ray, a very nice man, not a you know could not run a program in a way that was productive in Starkville. Ben Halland can. It's at some point you like people want to say you can't keep blaming Kim Anderson for everything. I don't think people necessarily understand, just even from a fiscal perspective. In a resource perspective, that Missouri is not in a vacuum here. That just because Missouri woke up and said, oh, we shouldn't have Kim Anderson as our basketball coach, it meant that just by getting a better coach, that they were going to automatically vault back up into the upper half of the standings. The rest of the league has started to care. And so when I see Missouri struggle, I it's infuriating and it's frustrating for a fan, I would imagine so, because you don't want to think a program that you, you know, remember being a stalwart member of the Big 8 and, you know, an important part of the Big 12 is now in this position, but this is what happens when you effectively napalm your program for three years. Yeah. Right? It's, and, you know, we can talk about, you know, it's Conzo Martin's job to win basketball games, and fine, whatever. But I think you can't ignore the context that, you know, while a lot of these losses to Ole Miss happened, Missouri just didn't, like, have a commensurate level of effort or care or stewardship of its basketball program. And that's the ramifications of it. 
that's how you wind up three and fourteen to Ole Miss, or part of the reason why you wind up three and fourteen to Ole Miss. <laughs> part part of the reason for sure. Yeah, I mean, it is it is like it's a disappointing thing to to talk about. Um, you certainly like. I think you're in a similar place that that I am. I'm a little bit older, so you know my my early memories of Mizzou basketball are uh, a little bit older. So I'm, you know, Derek Chivas and uh, and Doug Smith and stuff like that. And it's just like you know Missouri was in a different you know place, and and so like you, we tend to, and I think we've probably talked about this before, but I think fans tend to remember like the high points um far more than like you know the the low points and how the low points got to where they were um like norm stewart towards the end of his uh his tenure there was kind of hamstrung a bit with his uh his recruiting and his his team suffered and that's why he was ushered out the door i mean he was allowed to retire but i mean let's (laughs) <laughs> let's be honest he that was he was he was not uh he did not want to retire he was kind of not really given a choice so and then you know like Quinn came in and recruited better um you know he had uh the reputation and and the financial backing to kind of do it um you know but better they, fit the professional it, level yeah and like they you know the I guess the candle burnt a little too much at both ends and uh um, you know, and I think that led to the Mike Anderson rebuild, which, you know, if, if, if you, even if you look at like, you know, budgets and, and everything like that was right when things were really kind of starting to ramp up in the NCAA and all of a sudden it's like coaches were making more and more and more. Uh, and that's why Mike Anderson was like, no, like you got to invest in the program. Everyone's just like, why is Mike Anderson always flirting with other programs? Like, well, those other programs are offering more money. Uh, and and that's easier to win if you have more money and not and and, and again like not just for himself uh, you know but but you're getting your assistant coaches more money and you're getting stuff like that and I think if you put it in that context it, it it makes a lot of sense that you know when Missouri like you said punted um, you know and and really realistically like if at the time, you know, there was rumors that Matt Painter had uh, accepted the job and rumors that Chris Mack was interested in the job because Missouri was a different job back then. But they're not going to pay Kim Anderson what they were going to pay Matt Painter uh, or even Chris Mack. Like, you're going you're gonna to pay what the market says you pay for a guy coming from Division Two, which is not much. And so, you know, when you, when you make that decision... <laughs> It takes your budget down, but it also should realistically take your expectations down. And, and um, one one point on that is, like, people will say, "Well, Conzo makes three million. I think I looked this up a couple weeks ago. And granted, public records are in different states, and different numbers are out there. But if you like try to find the latest numbers, three million dollars is not a, a pittance. I don't want to make it sound like that, particularly in the economic climate we're in. But when you look at investments in coaches, Missouri's now around 7th, 8th, ninth in head coaching pay for Conzo Martin. Like yeah, it's 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 the bottom of the middle of the back. So, think about so that that's and so when you think of that, okay, Missouri's 7th or 8th in coaching pay and they wind up 11th in other and they wind up 11th in overall spending. I mean, 
what that probably tells me is that other schools are either investing, whether it's in training tables, whether it's facilities, whether it's recruiting budgets, whether it's staff budgets, whether it's, you know, your assistant pool. So, again, Missouri's not poor, but I, I think there's this perception that Missouri's, you know, spending at like a top four level in this conference and it's they're a, and they're not they're yeah. solidly middle class and if you believe that you know you should be consistently beating Ole Miss or you should be consistently performing ahead of some of these programs then you, you shouldn't be getting outspent like they did last year by a couple of years ago by South Carolina Florida and what and other peers like that I think it's just it's hard to and dollars and cents aren't everything and you know, people can maximize budgets and, you know, we certainly saw, as we mentioned earlier, Andy Kennedy did that, but I think what we're driving at here is, and we'll get back to the basketball game. We can talk about the more game if you want, but I think what you see in start, what you see in places like Starkville and Ole Miss is the rest of the league has started to close that gap or has closed that gap. And, Missouri is trying to extricate itself, I think, as much culturally as it is in terms of what's happening on the floor and having to, you know, sort of come to terms with the fact that, you know, because it was relevant in the late 80s or it had its moments in the 90s or it had, you know, some peaks under Mike Anderson, there's there has to be a reassessment there or the fact that the climate is such now that its peers are have moved ahead of it or are at the very least equal to it now and that's Mm -hmm. what happens when you go into a place that's decided we want to upgrade our coach so we're going to go hire Kermit Davis we're going to go give his staff you know competitive market rate pay and we're going to build a new basketball arena that you don't do that unless you care about being competitive in the sport and that's what Ole Miss has done and it's happened at a time when Missouri uh, retrenched and is now trying to get itself out of that. And, you know, it, sometimes. I think it's a know. lot harder to dig yourself out of a hole than staying out of the hole to begin with. Like, um, you know, if, if Missouri made different decisions 20 years ago, um, you know, 25 years ago, then obviously we're, we're probably having a, a very different conversation. Um, you know, but. On a so on a micro level though, like you know, game to game, obviously, I think there's a, a level of overachievement that uh, this program has had this year because it's some of the stuff that we've talked about before, uh, you know, which is they were sort of tailor made to have success in a in a weird year like this, um, and so kind of pivoting to to Arkansas, you know, the Arkansas game. Um, you know, I, I do think that they win that game if Jeremiah Tillman plays. Uh, you know, maybe Tillman comes in and he has another kind of bad game like he, he's had here and there. But, um, you know, I think that what they were really missing because everything was so perimeter-oriented, um, they were really missing anyone around the rim who can help them out, both on offense and on defense. Uh, I think there were several points during the game where Arkansas was just basically hurtling themselves towards the rim because there was nobody there to stop them. Um, and then, as well as Missouri sort of shot, and, and they were able to kind of sustain the lead in the first half, uh, and I kind of noted on Twitter that 
they seem to have come into like a recent struggle uh, coming out and defending uh, right out of halftime. So Matt, I also uh, went and looked this up because I was I was curious to see if if my um, you know my my immediate opinion on something was going to hold up to actual uh, scrutiny and the, the and the numbers. And so I looked at Missouri's last five games. Um, some of the like the defensive numbers I think are probably uh, as much if not more concerning as as their offensive numbers. Um, they gave up 27 points to Arkansas at the first 10 minutes of the second half. Um, they lost the first five minutes, 13 to eight, uh, against Ole Miss. First 10 minutes was 22 to 11. Um, the first five minutes was 13 to four, uh, against Alabama. They actually, they won both. Um, but they, they weren't like scoring at will against Alabama. Uh, they only scored eight points in the first five minutes, but uh, they continued to defend well, uh, which was, I think, the you know the thing that kind of got them through that, that Alabama game. Um, against Kentucky, they gave up 24 points in the first 10 minutes, Matt. Um, they lost the 10-minute the frame, 24 to 16. Uh, first five minutes, they were uh, eight to three. And then TCU, um, they gave up 19 points, uh, including 10 points in the first five minutes. So when you kind of look at those trends, um, like you're looking at Alabama almost being the outlier. Uh, you're giving up on average about you know 22 or three points, um, you know, within 10 minutes, which is a lot like you're getting it even in, in the pace of play that Missouri likes to play at, which is faster than they used to play at. It's still going to be a game that's largely played, you know, probably like 70 to 72 possessions a game. Uh, and giving up, you know, 20 plus points in a 10 minute frame is, is going to pace you out to, uh, you know, to be well over, um, you know, 1.1 points per possession or whatever you want to say, um, which just isn't good enough defensively. So where Missouri lost the game against Arkansas was in the you know the first five or ten minutes. Where they lost the game uh, to Ole Miss was in the first five or ten minutes. And you know maybe they don't beat Ole Miss, but you certainly don't want to get run out by twenty one points. Uh, and really, the only reason that it was a competitive basketball game against Kentucky was because Kentucky had success in the first ten minutes. So, and when you look at their wor- the when you look at their worst defensive efficiency ratings for the season, like their bottom five, four of them have come in the last two weeks. Hundreds, arguably in the last two weeks, you want to put Auburn on there, but um, Auburn 107.5 points in 100 possessions. TCU 126.7, Ole Miss 129.9, Arkansas 112.5. Just, like, and those are being seeded by... TCU probably not so much by that second half run because both teams were just on putting on shooting clinics that day too. Both it was that's a weird game that's always gonna be it's always gonna break my brain statistically. But three of those games, like you, you could see a noticeable difference. The Auburn game was ironic because they came out and started the second half well without Sharif Cooper and they put Sharif Cooper in. So I, I think the 
the last couple of weeks, there have been some issues for sure coming out of the locker room. Now, Kentucky, you could say two quick fouls on their bigs, put them in a bind. That's fine. We can explain it that way. But the slow start against Arkansas was scheme-based. They weren't very good in pick-and-roll defense. Um, Old Miss, again, struggles in pick-and-roll defense and switches. And help side rotations. Um, just the kinds of stuff you wouldn't expect to see Conzo Martin teams break down with. Just the fundamentals of defensive basketball that they drill or they're so well-schooled in have sort of eluded them. Now, you can put caveats in every game, but I think when you look largely, as I mentioned, by throwing those numbers out, the defense has been trending the wrong way for a couple of weeks. And, and that's what I think should be more alarming than anything else, is that this team, the only way its model is sustainable is to play well enough defensively to get in tight games like they did against Illinois and prevail, or to use their defense like they did against Tennessee to create some transition opportunities and runouts to build a lead. Same thing with Alabama. Like, they've had to use their defense to either stifle teams or to manufacture enough additional transition opportunities to offset what can be some bog and some lag in the half court. If the defense isn't functioning at anywhere close, like, if it's giving up more than a point per possession, the model that they use breaks down pretty quickly. And the question is... You know, if Tillman comes back, is that gonna is that gonna remedy it? Is this just been you know, hey, it's late in the season. We're seeing guys fatigue. We're seeing you know the drag mentally. You know, of COVID, I don't know, but erosion on the defensive end is how this team really winds up in a bind. Well, and I I also think like you can easily sort of point. Um, to like maybe some inflated numbers. I mean, the first. Uh, you know, five games of the year, uh, four games, whatever it was, you know, Mark Smith was terrific. Um, you know, since then, Mark Smith has been uh, problematic. Uh, and as, as and we've we've talked about this before, like Mark Smith is a guy who, I mean, deserves to play because of how good he is defensively, what he does. Uh, you know, he's always in the right place defensively. He defends hard. He rebounds well. Uh, and he, he, he is willing to, to drive the ball. Um, you know, I think the advantage that you have with Mark Smith versus, you know, Torrance Watson uh, is you have Mark Smith who's capable of making more plays. I mean, Torrance, I think I'm going to give him a lot of credit for how he played against Arkansas. Um he shot the ball well. He also defended the, the ball well, and he he threw his body around more than I think I've ever seen him. Uh, diving on the floor, he getting deflections, stuff like that. Um, if that's the kind of player that he's turning into, then that's the kind of guy that's going to see more minutes down the stretch. But um, but Mark Smith has been that guy for uh, for three years. So I'm not going to, you know. Rosie this up. Mark Smith was atrocious offensively, particularly against Arkansas. Um, and I, I'm really starting to wonder, um, 
and and starting to believe that like he's probably becoming more of a drag on the lineup because of how bad he's been offensively than the bonuses that he gives you elsewhere you know and i think that that was always sort of like like what we kind of talked about with you know javon pickett is is pickett um doesn't always give you everything that you need offensively but he does everything else and so you could live with that um as long as you found other guys to kind of provide the offense um you know without tillman in the lineup uh, it put more possessions in the hands of mark smith uh you know and then on top of that like you know pinson being in a little bit of foul trouble and even uh mitchell smith being in foul trouble um it it put the ball in his hands way more because you just i mean you can't ask drew smith to drive the ball uh, nine times out of ten you know when he has like that's just gonna wear him out but um i i would say like mark smith being a detriment offensively is is probably what ended up costing missouri the game if you look at since conference play began and if you lump in tcu missouri's net rating with mark on the floor in 660 possessions is minus three um now, when he sits, there's 240 possessions of him off the floor. So, roughly on the floor, about 75% of possessions in conference play. Uh, Missouri's got a plus 5 net rating. So, realistically, Missouri's 8 points better per 100 possessions when Mark's off the floor in SEC play. Um, again, you can we can talk about sample sizes and whatnot, but that's just off the top line number there. Well, I think it, you can also it, it, say but it that, used to be, but it used to be if you looked at it last year, Missouri was plus fifteen with him on the floor, like that was not uncommon. Last year was having him around plus fifteen, plus fourteen. So, just the flip to being a plus fourteen guy to a minus eight guy in a year is it speaks to your point about, particularly on the offensive end, um, is he becoming a drag? And I think you can see that, like right now in SEC play, when Mark's on the floor, Missouri's shooting just 31%, 31.7% from behind the three-point line. When he goes off the floor, they shoot 37.9%, which that's that's probably not what you would want to have if that's your, your floor spacing threat for your starting lineup, is to get seven percentage points better, six, seven percentage points better with him sitting. So... It's just it. I think the the other like offensively, it's a push right now. Missouri with him on or off the floor is averaging about ninety eight points per one hundred possessions unadjusted. But really, the defense there has been disconcerting. There, they, they've gotten eight points better when he sits. So again, you can we'd have to dig through lineups and kind of like try and get to the nuances there. But I, I think there's some merit in discussing, you know, what value is there if the defense isn't holding up and if the jump shooting's not there when mark puts the ball on the floor the rim finishing's not good enough his two-point field goal percentage isn't good enough and the turnover rate goes up so it, it i just don't know like you hate to be reductive with a guy because he does so many things for you as a rebound as a rebounding guard as an off-ball defender he does a great job getting out and running the floor in transition and pulling defenders wide 
to keep the middle of the floor open so Pinson can attack or Tillman can rim run. But in the half court, his his job is to knock down jumpers. And that's not happening with enough consistency. And you've got to find a way to manufacture offense around that. And that, and that gets really hard. Yeah, it, it becomes a, a drag. And not, you know, not that he hasn't, like, had some some moments because like I, I think he's one of the reasons they were able to sort of get out ahead of South Carolina and maintain that lead uh he was instrumental in beating Kentucky with uh you know shooting three of five from three-point range um outside of those those two games though it's like it's brutal so uh kind of want to move on I don't want to dwell on the Mark Smith stuff we'll uh hopefully have Mark break out this week who knows uh, maybe all he needs is a trip to Athens uh, and a, uh, a now 6 p.m. local tip time. Uh, the game was originally supposed to start at uh, 5.30 local time. Um, Karen was kind of asking about this. Uh, so jo- I think Georgia specifically kind of gets a lot of these like 5.30 tip games in the middle of the week, like if they're at home. Uh, I think South Carolina will as well. Like if there's a – they'll do like the 5.30, 7.30 um lineup for um you know for some of those those teams that are on the east coast uh and M- missouri i think it, so i looked at it they didn't have one last year but i think it was two years ago uh when they they had a, a 5 30 uh tip at georgia um so that game has been moved to uh seven for anyone who's interested in other sec games there was some some alterations um we're going to play tuesday wednesday and thursday games this week uh missouri georgia um sec network at uh, six o'clock florida at arkansas that should actually be a pretty interesting game um at the same time but on espn too so they'll be on at six and then no other games that night wednesday uh kentucky at vanderbilt um which is not changed uh, but South Carolina at Tennessee has been um, moved to Wednesday from Tuesday. Um, another kind of interesting game, like Tennessee's obviously been struggling, uh, but South Carolina hasn't really shown up the way we thought that they might this year. Uh, then Thursday you get Alabama at Texas A&M. Looks like Texas A&M is finally going to come off their pause. Uh, that is going to be at uh, 2 o'clock, so a nice little afternoon tip um, on Thursday. And you get Mississippi State at Auburn at 4 o'clock. And LSU at Ole Miss will be also at uh, 4 o'clock. So some kind of weird uh, times on Thursday, but uh, a chance to watch some some matinee basketball, Matt. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, LSU gets to play two road games at Ole Miss this year. Fun times for uh, the Bayou Bengals uh, to go to the Magnolia State twice. But, um, yeah, the trip to Athens and a... Uh, it's not a trap game, but it's one that like you would expect Missouri to win, but they won't have Jeremiah Tillman, as you mentioned, or as was announced today. So that's kind of a confounding variable there. Uh, but Georgia uh, doesn't really believe in defense or is, is fine with um, the loosest definition of defense. Uh, it and LSU are probably uh, the two teams that just believe it as a vague theory. Uh, not to be tried uh, or tested all, with all that much regularity, but 
Uh, Georgia is 139th in adjusted uh, efficiency on defense. Dead last um, during SEC play. So. In SEC play, they are 14th, giving up uh, 1.12 points per possession. I'm, I would almost assume that's the that might be adjusted as well, you know, for opponent. But um, that's bad, Matt. That's not good defense. Uh, no, no, it's not. Uh, on the flip side, they force a lot of turnovers. Uh, they give the ball up a lot too. Um, so it, it it'll. What was the? I think it was. Was it Vanderbilt, Georgia? Uh, there was some like it was like a, a Zigfield. It was the Zigfield like follies of like just turnovers back and forth. Yeah, like like a a good forty five seconds of play where the ball was just going, you know, all over the down place to one tor- end, down the other, and and no shots being taken, just turnovers. Yeah, that was that. That's a good encapsulation of what Georgia basketball can be at times. Uh, but they've got two guys that. That we've thought are interesting, or at least have potential, uh, in Severe Wheeler, really, really good, uh, dynamic creator, uh, point guard. Um, not exactly a prime scorer. He's prop. He's listed at five ten. I think that's generous. Uh, uh, I think he's probably closer to five eight. But uh, really dynamic, can play in the open floor. Uh, turnover prone in the open floor, but uh, really kind of is tasked with uh, leading the charge for them. Kamara is a is the essence of a modern big man. Does rarely posts up. Is uh, almost more at home running the floor in transition and and rolling and cutting than he is posting up. And uh, he likes the dunker spot too. He loves him some dunker spot. Uh, I will say this: close out short on him. You don't have to close out. You don't have to fly by him. You can close out short. Uh, he's only knocking down fourteen percent of spot up jumpers. Don't need to go screaming out like a bat out of hell to to Monte Kamara on the perimeter. Um, but then they've got uh, the comp- the supporting cast is not quite what we thought uh, for various reasons. But Katie Johnson's uh, more of a defensive presence uh, or a guy who can at least create some turnovers for you. Ty Fagan on the wing uh, is really really he wants to play off uh, closeouts. He wants to drive it. He wants to cut. Um, Ty Fagan has attempted fewer three-pointers than Tumani Kamara. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm saying is he wants to get to the rim. And then, <laughs> ironically, their combo forward, P.J. Horn, loves to launch three balls. And it's just so he, a weird team. It, 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 yeah, it's it's a weird roster where the undersized combo forward is the floor spacer for them. Uh, they've got Justin Keir who is a uh, George Mason transfer, who's kind of a reserve, but not a reserve. Uh, Jackson Etter, a sophomore, who's filling in because there are some other roster issues with more high-profile recruits that we can talk about if you want. Uh, well, yeah, Andrew, so Christian and, Brown is a guy who I think I profiled um, in my preview. Uh, and a guy who I kind of thought... like I, I Like, I remember watching him... And I never saw him live, you know, but I would I'd see some game tape and whatnot. I really liked him. Um, he's a top 100 kid, good athlete. Uh, look, it looks like he had all the tools, uh, and and he had a a decent enough freshman year that made me think, all right, if he can kind of put it together in a good off season, like he could be a key for Georgia. Uh, and then 
you know, Tom Crean went out and recruited all these guys, uh, like Justin Keir and um, oh, who was the other guy? Um, he went out and recruited Horn. He went out and recruited Garcia. Like, yeah, all these out- kind of like combo forwardy type dudes who, um, who are just t- likely going to take minutes from from younger guys, uh, which to me like was a little bit of a red flag so it's like okay so he's obviously not super happy with with the performance of those guys and jaquan uh, and, walton's already gone so yeah jaquan walton is a guy who had a missouri offer and and um looked like the kind of guy who could really develop as another sort of top 125 level kid um you know good size uh could handle the ball decent skill level uh and just yeah i don't know what happened to him but he transferred out in december well, yeah, I mean, uh, like he transferred oh, yeah. out. I like, I don't, I don't know if he's picked another school or or what, but uh, we have not heard from him. And honestly, like Christian Brown is, so he's been, had one, two, three, four, five DNPs in conference been, play. He's had a lower body injury that has not been specified other than that, at least according to reports I saw. But the the gist of this is, is like that that Ballyhood recruiting class that cream brought in that had, you know, Ant-Man that, and had these two other guys in it and Kamara and Wheeler has just, it's almost eerily reminiscent of the 2017 Missouri class where you have five or six guys come in and only two are left. And then you're just sort of having to try and work in developmental guys and transfers around it. Yeah. And the results have not been, what you'd hope for uh, in year three for Tom down at for, uh, for well, so they did not challenge themselves in the non-conference. Uh, they went seven and zero. The highest ranked opponent was Cincinnati, and they were the highest ranked opponent by a lot. Um, Cincinnati is currently ninety seventh in Ken Palm. Uh, so Georgia started off seven and zero, then entered conference play, got a little bit of a wake up call. What you know, actual opponents might look like. Uh, but they have since they they have won uh, f- five of, the, of their last nine games. My my, it's my bath right on that. Yeah, they're five and four in their last nine. With wins, two wins over Ole Miss, a win over Kentucky, uh, Auburn, on the road at Auburn, and uh, and Vanderbilt at home. Um. They the did Vandy give up 89 points to, uh, to Tennessee. <laughs> and 115 uh, to Bama. <laughs> I think I think that was not on the podcast we were talking earlier. Tennessee is is just bad offensively. So to give up 90 points uh, to Tennessee and then to turn around and let Alabama basically set like a, a record for their home court, 115 points. Um, yeah, it's – so – this is, I mean, it's like you're saying, it's not really a trap game. I don't know how much you can have like a trap game when like Missouri's going down there having lost two in a row and, uh, and again, like having to face an opponent without who I like, I would argue that Jeremiah Tillman is their most important player. Yeah. Um, you do still have Drew Smith and Xavier Pinson and, uh, and all that, but you know, Javon Pickett is still kind of hobbled and has not played well since he hurt his, his ankle. Uh, and apparently Kobe Brown was getting his, his calves all massaged up. Uh, so you certainly hope that everybody's ready to go, but 
you know, this is a game that I don't want to say like I'm I'm not like full on worried because I tend not to worry about whether or not Missouri is going to win. Um, but this is a game that could be sneaky and it could be really tough. And Missouri's only projected to win by three points, so that's pretty close to a toss up. Also, this factor too, uh, Missouri uh, still. Thing I would point out, um, Missouri still turns the ball over a lot. Georgia can create a lot of live ball turnovers, and they want to get going towards the rim. Missouri fouls a lot. Uh, it it's just a game where there's no rim protector. You're going to have to, and you're going to have a team that's going to want to play downhill on you all night. You're going to have one that wants to get in and create turnovers. It's stylistically, you could see this one getting to where Georgia wants it to be. And if it's being played up and down, I mean, Missouri will say it's happy with that, but it can say that when it usually is Jeremiah Tillman there, you know, hustling back to the nail or to the top of the restricted area to at least try and have a semblance of rim protection. Yeah. They don't have that right now. Um, I mean, you'd hope. I will they... say, like, this is a game, you know, because of how Georgia likes to play, that you could see, you know, Xavier Pinson having a big night. That that That's where I was going. This, this one seems to have a, an, an X type of night, particularly because two of Georgia's starting guards are absolutely atrocious guarding ball screens. So, <laughs> um, and like... It just sounds like, like and real, realistically, like, how many people are going to be listening to this podcast before uh the, the game so we probably shouldn't spend a whole lot of time talking about it yeah but yeah uh it's gonna be a fun the this is a game where if you get the result you don't get credit but if you lose it um you hope the committee takes into account that uh jeremiah temple wasn't available uh yeah. south carolina though a game where you really hope jeremiah Temple yeah is back. yeah yeah um because I think like the biggest key to the game the first time around. Now, gr- granted, Mark Smith making some shots was was big, but South Carolina had absolutely no answer for Jeremiah Tillman around the rim. None. Wilden's Levesque was not the answer. And they they got into a situation where they had to play in the half court with Missouri. And when you do that to South Carolina, they are it's just a finger trap for them. They can't figure out what they want to do. They can't get out of it. There's there's no real solution there. Um, again, if you're having to play small and in order to create rim opportunities, you're having to pick the pace up, that's a game where South Carolina is going to want it to go, particularly at home. Um, even if they don't have a crowd there, they're going to feel more at ease. So it's a game, it's a week where y- you worry about Tillman how long Tillman's going to be out for because it's not a health issue with him, but you also want to make sure that he comes back from outside Missouri's pseudo bubble has tested negative and is good to go. So you don't have an inadvertent COVID pause three weeks before the NCAA tournament. So, and it's just, it's, it's crappy timing to have it coincide with a week where you really don't want to drop either one of these games. Not only for your NCAA tournament, you know, resume, which, again, I, we talked about this before we went on air, and we can talk about it a little bit. And I feel like we're glancing over South Carolina and Georgia, but, you know, realistically, there's not much to dissect about those teams. But this is a time when you you worry almost less about the selection committee 
than you do about where you are in the conference standings and where you are seed wise for that. I, I don't think you want to be six and five right now and come out of this at you know seven and six or even worse six and seven. You, yeah. You you want to bank two wins here, and at least give yourself a chance to stay in the mix for for a double buy. So big bigger almost bigger stakes in terms of their seeding for the conference tournament than the NCAA tournament at this point. If we have a conference tournament, I, I'm unabashed in my belief that we shouldn't, but. There's we a lot of the- money on the table. Got to have that television content. Um, can you just have everybody like play each other again? Like, let's, well, let's- if you got rid of the conference tournament, we could make up all these games. We could make up the games that got missed, have a full set of standings, and then give out an auto bid. Yeah, I like it. It I, like honestly, like that's I, I think that's what all of these conferences should do. But we know that. Because Mitch Barnhart is saying on television that, like, you know, we would it would really help the committee to have these conference tournaments to evaluate teams. Okay, Mitch, but wouldn't it help you to have like teams that completed an entire season, like completed their entire conference slate? If you think about this, like, if you're Duke, who's had a rough season, you're not going to the NCAA's. Your your top freshman just opted out of the season. like what's the point in going to a conference tournament if you're boston college you just fired your coach uh they've suspended indefinitely like a 13 point score they're playing walk-ons this is another thing that i love about the fact that they've they fired jim christian he's playing walk-ons because of like availability of players just so they can play basketball games and, and boston college is like no we're gonna fire you right now um but what incentive does Boston College? What incentive does Duke? What incentive, uh, you know, if if you're you're fast forwarding to, uh, um, you know, the SEC tournament? What incentive does Vanderbilt or even Mississippi State like? I so yeah, I would I would have a a different frame of mind on Texas A&M just because that's Buzz Williams, and I feel like Buzz is just like, no, we're gonna compete no matter what. And uh, and and pretty much just like will his team to play in those games, but you know honestly, like you know he, he's he's also a pretty pragmatic guy. Maybe he looks at it just like you know maybe this is a, a good opportunity for us to just sort of roll it up. And so there's like all these situations, uh, and then you could even look at like Alabama. Like what incentive does Alabama have to play in a conference tournament? Like if Alabama. Let's say they rattle off like three or four, you know. We'll just say two, two more wins. Like they they put the conference behind them. They're winning the auto bid. Like they're in charge. Uh, they're also looking at at worst a two seed. And like, what incentive do you have to go to a conference tournament and potentially like get COVID? <laughs> And then, like, screw up your opportunity to, to play in the NCAA tournament. And that, that's been my whole thought here is I get the TV money and I get there's contracts and language and, and commitments that are in place here. But just if you're the conference office, wouldn't you want to have your best contender for a deep run in the tournament? And the more teams you have go deep, the more win shares you get, which is more money coming into the conference coffers. 
like I would I would be willing to forego one year conference tournament revenue unless it, the penalty is so great in Nashville for doing this. But just as a in a vacuum, as a practical matter, skipping the tournament to me is is a no brainer, and just getting your six teams as much time to get healthy, get tested, and be ready to go into the indie bubble and compete and and give itself a chance to perform well. But honestly, like it, even if you're Missouri, and let's say you know Missouri plays well enough. Uh, down the stretch here, they win. What do we got? Five games left. Uh, let's say they go four and one. They win all the games that they're projected to right now. They go two and zero this week, two and zero next week. Lose at Florida. They're staring at a five seed. Like, are you going to a conference tournament? I'm taking that five seed. Like, like you've had a. It, it's look. It's a rough season. This is a weird rough season for everybody. If, if you like, if I'm Consul Martin and I'm like, all right, we just finished. Uh, what would that put their record? They're six and five, so they're they're ten and and six, ten and six in conference, ten and six in conference. There, we've got these, uh, you know, these quad one wins. We're looking at a five seed. Um, like, what does a conference tournament get for you, other than? Other than risk and and whether or not you you go in there and you lose the first round or you win the whole damn thing, the risk of of like potentially turning a positive test, and then and you gotta have seven straight days of those things before you can go into the indie bubble, right? Like, I would like, want to go. Well, I don't. I really don't understand why the NCAA set it up this way. Are like you're basically telling conferences that. It's really, Please put our you're, biggest you're, money-making event at risk, so you can have a conference. Like, if I was, this is, I don't understand why Mark Kimmer wouldn't be calling these conferences and being like, "Dummies, cancel this. We're not going. Like, let's not. This is how we make money. This is the thing that funds our entire organization. Is this event? We have gone out of our way to host it in one place. Just give us the auto bid from your regular season champ. Let us and." You know, if the committee, if Mitch Barnhart is mad that he doesn't have an extra two games from a bubble team to decide who's going to be a 10 or an 11 seed or who's going to, doesn't even matter for the first four because we're all going to the same place anyway. It just, you, or at worst, use that extra week to complete the conference, like I said, to complete conference play so you can, so you can give a complete portfolio to the selection committee. Yes. So, but regardless, Missouri is in a position now where they've got four game, they've got five games left. Only one's a legit quad one win opportunity, assuming they don't get the LSU game back. To if they were a six seed in in Nashville, they're currently sixth in the standings, I believe. They would have to get past potentially the eleven seed, which is going to be. Uh, Georgia again, so that's not a quad one win for you. Your quad, then you you get LSU in the quarterfinals, so there's your quad one win. But you got to win that one, but that's only one game, and then you're gonna hopefully 
make a push. But at this point, how many more quad one wins are going to secure you or move you to the four line? We don't know. Like you, we're arguing this in a vacuum, you know, as to what's going to move Missouri back closer to the to the protected seed line. But yeah, I just gonna... like I don't really see a, a big advantage to having the conference tournament for uh, for Missouri. The only like at this point, I think if you are in a position where you are very likely in the in the tournament, let's say a seven seed or higher. Uh, and I think you're looking at for uh, the SEC. You're looking at Alabama. You're looking at um, Tennessee and Missouri, and then what? Maybe Florida. Uh, and then I think both Arkansas and LSU are, are more in the bubble territory. Um, so if you, if that's what you're kind of looking at, then the only like the only teams who are. Uh, interested in men and you know playing these games are going to be the teams that are on the bubble and so i would think that like if so for lsu lsu still has missouri left to play like wouldn't lsu just rather just let's just schedule missouri let's play missouri like we if we beat missouri that's a quad one win that puts us in the tournament like let's do that rather than uh you know, risk Missouri getting upset by Georgia. <laughs> and then, and then like, and then you lose and, uh, yeah, you beat Georgia, which obviously doesn't help you. And then like, like this is like all the things that can happen in the conference tournament because everybody is so familiar with everybody. Like all results can are, can and, and will happen. Yeah. Especially in this year where the margin between teams is just minuscule. So yeah, I just think like the the more prudent thing is let's let's play the games that we lost uh, for at least for the teams that have a chance, you know. So let's let's have LSU and Missouri play. Um, who else has been on pause? Florida's been on pause. You know, whoever Florida hasn't played, you play. Uh, like you know, if Texas A&M wants to go home, let Texas A&M go home. If Vanderbilt wants to go home, let Vanderbilt go home. Like I would rather. I would rather like take the teams that really kind of have something to prove and, and have them play. I would rather just not have any tournament and just let Missouri's let teams like Missouri and Alabama and everyone let have the fullest opportunity to put a complete conference schedule in front of the committee and let it be judged on that merit. Um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, and that's kind of what I'm saying. Like, I'm just saying like, if they said that Missouri and LSU were going to play, but they are not going to reschedule the Missouri uh, Vanderbilt game, like I'm not going to cry about that. I... <laughs> it's just hard for, I don't know. It, but on the NCAA tournament, we've gone 63 minutes and we haven't talked about how Missouri was a protected seed for all of five hours on Saturday. So no, but that well, it was nice while it lasted. Um, <laughs> Which I don't like. I don't think that was all that. You know, surprising though. I mean, I think no, no. I, they, I, they've had the momentum there for a while, and I mean, they're coming off the win against Alabama, who I think everybody had either in like the one or two seed line, depending on kind of where things were. Um, so it was looking really good, and then you know, like as things happen in college basketball, LSU, uh, you know, kicked the crap out of out of Tennessee, which uh, further damaged Missouri's win. <laughs> Over over the Vols and uh, 
I, like that's just and then you know obviously Missouri lost to Arkansas um but I do think it's it, it is interesting that that bracket was revealed after the Ole Miss loss and I, so I like it's one of these things like you always have to keep in mind that that Missouri's results are never in a vacuum one team uh and their results are never in a vacuum uh there's all these other games going around and as long as other games are happening and every like other teams are losing like anything's possible so Missouri very much could end up back in like a four line they very uh very much could fall back to a seven like there's just a lot of variance the only thing that I'm sure of at this point is is Missouri will be in the tournament and the only thing I would say is the the thing about and we kind of talked about it after the results came out is it, it almost when you release a, a peak at the top 16 seeds now it it has a sense of like it, it reframes uh, your view of the season or it can do that you know if we went through a year and we didn't know and all we had was bracketologists like trying to decipher and make educated guesses about how the bracket's going to look and we got we saw Missouri was on the four and the five line right now we'd say oh they look like they're in line for this but we don't know there would be nothing to confirm our suspicions. It would just be really, really educated conjecture. We'd get to March. These results that we've seen the last week would have happened. Missouri would have, like, let's say, slid to a five or a six seed. We still would have said, okay, Missouri entered the year. Our data points are entering the year. They were picked 10th. They finished X spot in the SEC, and they earned a six seed in the NCAA tournament. By every, based on the benchmark that they entered the year with, this year was an unqualified success. They were picked 10th. They wound up with a six seed in the NCAA tournament, and maybe they won a game. But now that you have the bracket that's been released, confirming, in some ways, having the NCAA's imprimatur saying, yes, in late February or in early mid-February, we confirm that Missouri would have the resume to be a protected seed. <laughs> now, all of a sudden, the entire discussion gets reframed because now you don't just have, like, Joe Lenardi saying it. No, Mitch Barnhart is on your TV on CBS saying, there's Missouri on the 16, in the number 16 spot on the four line. Here's the hypothetical region we'd put them in. Again, I'm not saying that to say it shouldn't diminish disappointment for not being a protected seed, but it sort of skews the discussion and the assessment of what we're going to get to in March, which if Missouri, if you told me in October that Missouri was going to finish maybe sixth or better in the standings and be a sixth seed in the NCAA tournament. I'd have said it's an, it's, it's a banner year for them. They absolutely, they entered the year with a, with the necessary goal and a mission critical objective to get into the tournament. And all I did, they did that. They got, they got a pretty decent seed out of it in a yeah. year. And so that, that's my only thing is I think it's just the interesting. Seed is a good seed. Like, yeah. And that's my only sort of point is, it's just interesting to see how it's going to reframe, potentially reframe an assessment of what the year was, because you at least because there's been a 30 minute show that said, you know, Missouri was actually on track for a four seed, and you know, it's it's just an interesting thing, and I only give it so much credence because, like you said, there's even during that day, like when they were announcing it, Ohio State was kicking the crap out of Indiana. Like, how would that have, like, would that have moved them past Michigan, who was on a COVID pause? I don't know. So it's it, it's it's a marketing ploy that, you know, 
still has some you know merit that we have to give it. We gotta serve the content monsters, man, and and I think like that's like a big part of it. Obviously, is is they are they are looking at ways to sort of create more and more interest and 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 have you know give people stuff to talk about. It's like the same thing with like the college playoff uh, you know thing for the uh, college football. Like it's it's completely unnecessary. And even if you wanted to do it, like maybe wait till like the like the last like four weeks where it actually matters. But yeah, being ranked like eight weeks out by the college football committee doesn't really mean anything. Like it's where you are at the end. Um, interesting though, because we were talking about a uh, potential six seed and and what that would mean. Um, so Missouri made the NCAA tournament five years in a row. Um, in a, and, and, and a really nice run there from 2009 to uh, 2013. Um, they were a two seed in 2012, a three seed in uh, 09, and the other three years they were a 9, 10, and 11 seed. Uh, four years ago they were an eight seed. So, and and that team was the very definition of limping to the finish. Uh, yeah. They had Michael Porter Jr. with a bad back, you know, playing with Brett Rao um, yeah, cause on, on, on the court for, for many minutes <laughs> against <'cause>... Florida State. <laughs> Colin Van Leer torn, torn ligaments in his knee. Cash was probably on a bump foot. Barnett had a DUI that held him out. Just that, that God bless Brett Rao, man. The guy stepped up. He, he he did not take a DMP in the NCAA tournament, so kudos to him. That is something no one can ever take away from him. Didn't he score a bucket too? He did score. That is something that nobody can ever take away. He had three points. That's what I'm saying. Boy didn't just take. He didn't just get a log minutes. He's in the ledger. He's there. He lives in a society. He, he played more minutes than Reed Neko. <laughs> gonna show that uh, tape to his kids he's gonna pull that up on youtube <laughs> and i don't blame him i would too man uh cash was struggling he still went six to ten from three that's crazy um oh. all right we gotta get out of here we're like way over. over uh but we will be back next week obviously with more with more dive cuts um matt's gonna dream of uh mifiondu kabengale I, I really thought he was going to be a Mufun, decent... Mufundu Gelly. Man, the draft picks love that guy. And uh, it has not panned out. Yeah. I, I thought he was going to have a decent NBA career. It, it did not work out. Um, but yeah, we'll be back next week. Uh, we'll talk some more uh, some Mizzou hoops, hopefully coming off of 2-0 week. Uh, either way, no matter what happens, we'll be back. And until then, thanks for tuning in.